Adam Roberts, British science fiction writer, academic, and professor at the University of London. He's author of 25 science fiction novels. This is the first episode of the Adam Roberts series. All right. Well, hey, if authors were placed on trading cards like professional sports players, your, your stats would be pretty impressive. You've been nominated for Arthur C. Clark Award five times. You've been nominated for the John W. Campbell Award four times, and then one for Best Novel. You've been nominated for, the, for Philip K. Dick. Uh, you're a recipient of a British Science Fiction Award for Best Book, and that's just the start. You've written over 25 novels, running the gamut from I Am Scrooge, uh, a zombie tale. I really appreciated that one, by the way. Uh, the Dragon with the Girl Tattoo. I have to read carefully because I have a <laughs> syntax error there with the other one. <laughs> uh, yes, listen carefully, audience. The Dragon with the Girl Tattoo. Uh, and then uh, most recently you have, or soon you will have the This and Purgatory Mount, which is out and available now. So my first comment to share with the audience is that, you know, if, if you're not already reading Adam Roberts, once you've taken a shine to his novels, there's a good few years of reading materials here to catch up with. So congratulations, uh, Adam. How does it feel to be prime binge reading material? I, I wouldn't binge me, I have to say this. I don't mean to be <laughs> self-deprecating or anything like that. I mean, part of the, it, the advantage for me is that not many of these books are available in the States. So you'd have to go out of your way to do kind of collector's editions and stuff like that. But yeah, there's a phrase, isn't there, in, in, the, in the rag trade and tailoring where they say, never mind the quality, feel the width. If you've got lots and lots of books in there, eventually one of them is going to you know take your box and one of them is going to satisfy you nice yeah the other things i found out reading your um wikipedia entry is you're involved in the in the london literary circles I had no idea there was such an abundance of societies you know we don't have those so much in the states societies that's we always set those in europe in, in thrillers usually is when there's a society oh, yeah. uh but you, you're an abundance of societies and lectures and uh i suppose a, a large historical city like london would have such a lot of them and so the literary people of london are, are going to put together events to be active and engaged in the u.s the only thing similar is science fiction conventions i would say and maybe comic cons and uh and, and award ceremonies what I learned is that you're, you were, or maybe still are, vice president of the H.G. Wells Society. So are you still in that, hold that position? That, that eminent position, yeah. I'm not the actual president, but, you know, right. I'm, I'm planning, a, planning a coup. Yes. If I can just get enough tripods to, to storm Patrick Parinder's house, I can depose <laughs> it and take over the H.G. Wells Society. No, I am, I am vice president of the H.G. Wells Society, and I was very, genuinely very honoured and delighted when they asked me to take that role. I wrote a biography of H.G. Wells, and I've always loved H.G. Wells. 
not I mean I, I loved him for his science fiction I was reading his science fiction when I was growing up but he wrote a lot more than just science fiction so I wrote a biography a literary biography of him and they the HG Wells Society made me their vice president which is really cool I mean I'm really still quite chuffed about that that's cool yeah only the small how do I say this only the small matter of writing a book to get in which is yeah. <laughs> no small matter <laughs> yeah so what does the HG Wells Society what are they up to nowadays well they're they're a society that are that their their purpose is to promote the people's interest in HG Wells and promote the reading and the study of HG Wells. So we have meetings. I mean, over the last two years, like everybody else, we've been having remote meetings. They publish a newsletter. They publish scholarly articles on Wells, and it's just in that kind of world of of everything that Wells means. I mean, Wells interest me very much because in his day he was easily the most famous writer in the world he was a friend of presidents and princes and movie stars and he wrote all sorts of different kinds of books fiction and non-fiction but today he's only really known for a few science fiction titles that he wrote in the first decade of his career as a writer so that we've heard of the war of the worlds maybe or the invisible man or the time machine but he wrote hundreds and hundreds of novels in fact i'll, I'll be honest with you lancer because you have a nice open trustworthy face but I'll, I agreed with Polgrave Macmillan the publisher to write this biography of Wells really on the strength of the fact that I knew his science fiction so well ah. but then I sat down and I realised he started publishing in the in the 1890s he published every year until he died in 1946 usually two or three books a year and i'd read very few of these later books and wow. i was going to have to sit down and read them all obviously before i could write his biography so i thought well that's great i'll really get on top of hg wells so i started reading i reread all his science fiction from the 1890s and then all his you know, regular fiction from the 1900s and his experimental fiction and non-fiction through the 19-teens and the first world war and the 1920s and you get to a point in about early 1930s when I was going, oh, could you not just die? If you died now, then I wouldn't have to read all these terrible late <laughs> novels that you wrote when you were too old to write good novels anyway. It's a terrible thing to say. Oh. You know, you lived a long and full and interesting life, but I had to trudge right to the end. And his very last book was called Mind at the End of Its Tether which is just the most gloriously pessimistic title for a book. And he's just given up all hope by this stage. He said, oh, well, the world's really? rubbish. Oh, no. And, you know, we just lived through the worst war in history, and it's going to get worse and worse, and I just give up. Oh, wow. Wow, yeah. No, I've not read those later books. I've only read <laughs> the usuals, I guess. Uh, wow. Yeah. Okay, very fascinating. I mean, he is really good. The science fiction is really, really good, and it's it's worth rereading if you if you read it a long time ago or, or reading it if you've never read it. The War of the Worlds is it's really short, it's really punchy, it's beautifully written, and it's full of these extraordinary images that really live with you. I don't think any. I mean, there've been many film adaptations of it, but I don't think any film adaptation has quite caught the genius of the original novel. Okay. I was surprised to read about, and I didn't know this till I was. You know, researching for this interview was he was a bit of a he was he was a, how do I say this he was he was into the sex scandals I suppose I would say or he was very um, okay. uh, what's the word promiscuous I suppose which back in those days oh, was really that, not a thing or not common anyhow out oh yeah um, so I, as I was working on the the biography 
Jar Jar Gabor died. Do you remember Jar Jar yeah. Gabor died at quite an elderly age a few years ago? And then I was happened to be reading that same day that I read her obituary. I happened to be reading that Wells met the young Jar Jar Gabor when she was still a teenager when she came to London and tried to get her into bed. You think he was? It's, you go through a list. He, there were almost no kind of famous woman particularly in little circles in London that he didn't sleep with. And the thing that amazes me about that is, I mean, we, he was a very short Cockney. He wasn't from a kind of upper-class background. He spoke with a high-pitched Cockney accent. He had an unusually small head. He was kind of funny. <laughs> and yet women just found him irresistible. And I'm not quite sure what his secret was. I mean, I'm, it's, you know, I'm, I've, been married for many years now so it's just kind of an academic question for me now but you're thinking if i'd known it was back when i was young and on the dating scene i would you know we should maybe we should co-author a book dating secrets of hg wells (laughs) one of the things that women said about i mean he was very funny he was very charming he was very intelligent he was very attentive to women at an age when lots of men weren't i think that goes a long way but one of the things women said about him is that his skin smelled of honey and I asked my dad, who's a retired now but was a doctor when he was alive, why would your skin smell of honey? He said, oh, well, that's, that's a clear sign of diabetes because you're not processing the sugar. And he was diagnosed as a diabetic in the, in the 1920s and had to go on a special diet, and he helped co-found the British Diabetic Society. So oh, wow. it had at least got this, I suppose, this benefit that women would come near him and go, oh, you smell nice. You smell all honey-like, and I'll, uh, I'll let you sweet-talk me into bed. <laughs> Yeah, well, I was going to go with that, that he has the heart of a poet, and maybe that was what it was. But, <laughs> but That's what women really want, is it? They want a man with the heart of a poet. <laughs> and he might have, was he wealthy as well? That also helps too, but... Yeah, he, I mean, he, he came from a very, he came from what you call a lower middle class background. He wasn't raised wealthy, and he wasn't destined for any great shakes. He was going to be a shop assistant, right. but he left all that behind and just really by the force of his kind of genius uh, made himself into a a very wealthy man he became a hugely best-selling author and particularly with his journalism once the first world war started he could command incredible fees for his journalistic productions and he's you know he coined lots of key phrases so the the war to end all wars that's something he came up with he he coined the the, the the name the atom bomb he invented the idea of a time machine that never been no one had ever written a story about a machine that would help you travel in time before he wrote the first mm. science fiction about uplifted animals and invisible men and alien invasion these are all kind of came straight out of his head mm. so no he was quite wealthy wow. uh, in his that does help you're right that's that's no hardship he was very generous with his money as well so he wasn't kind of miserly ah cool Sci-Fi Thoughts wants to expand. We want to grow from not just your podcast player, but to spread to your co-workers, your family, and your friends. But I haven't got any friends. Why, you little... One, two, three... Oh, no, you don't. We know you've got friends who are, who are into the science, who are into science fiction, 
These are the people who are playing Halo and Stellaris and, and other space games instead of watching college football. There are the ones in the NASA t-shirts who are busy inventing something with their 3D printers. Email them a link to this podcast. Send them a social media request. Heck, even speak to them and tell them that you've enjoyed the show. The main point is to impress upon them how much you enjoy sci-fi thoughts. Tell them to go to the URL sci-fi thoughts.space. Don't keep sci-fi thoughts secret because keeping secrets from science fiction fans just isn't nice. In this episode's show notes, you will see a TEDx talk by Adam Roberts and assortment of other activities. Where are the show notes? Check out the show notes in the podcast player app. You just need to go click on the, in the app and you will see the notes there. If you don't use a podcast player, but you downloaded the MP3, just go back to this website where you got it and you will see those words right there. Next episode, more Adam Roberts. Apparently, you know something about Tolkien as well. You gave the second annual Tolkien lecture, which I thought was an interesting sentence by itself. Number one, there's a, there's, there, we're numbering the lectures. <laughs> this is the second one. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, they, they do annually now. I mean, I, again, it's been a bit disrupted by COVID and lockdown and everything, but it, it's they're held in Balliol College, which is Tolkien's old Oxford College, and the Tolkien Society arranges them, and they're very, I mean, they're really great. It was really interesting to do mine and get and have that and a large audience and kind of feedback. I talked about Tolkien and women, which is kind of an interesting topic because people don't think of Tolkien as being very progressive or having.